Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. The late John Lewis said, God gave us courage, the power to believe that the spirit of history behind us is stronger than the terror of hatred in front of us. The power of the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. To honor the memory and legacy of John Lewis, hundreds of blooming plants, including over 300 blooming trees, will be planted in Freedom Park this weekend, culminating on what would have been the congressman's 81st birthday Sunday. Kalinda Lee of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and Greg Levine of Trees Atlanta will tell us about the flowering forest tree tribute to John Lewis later this hour. First, the new PBS series from Dr. Henry Louis Gates is The Black Church, a four-part documentary tracing over 400 years of black worship and culture in America. The full title of this series is The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. When it comes to song in this documentary, an Atlantan is featured prominently, the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews is senior minister of the historic First Congregational Church in Atlanta, professor of music at Emory University, an accomplished composer and musician as well. Dr. Dwight Andrews, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be with you again. I have the impression that you knew Henry Louis Gates before shooting this documentary. How did you become involved with this series? Well, I have to admit that I would like to think that uh, Dr. Gates chose me because I'm a brilliant scholar of African-American music and culture. This is true. 
<laughs> but I think the other part of it is he's a very dear friend. I baptized his children. Uh, he was in my wedding. So we go oh. back a long way. So we have a great personal relationship. And, uh, and this is a, another manifestation of our professional relationship. And I would have been very disappointed if I wasn't at least given an opportunity to consult with him on this. So it worked out very well. I'm about to introduce some Yiddish into our Black Church conversation, Dwight. When I first saw you on screen in episode one of this series, I quelled just bursting with pride that Dr. Gates knew you would bring such expertise and insight to the role of music in the black church. When we first see you in episode one, it's within a discussion about music and dance. And I was hoping you would tell us more about the ring shout. Right. Well, we have some really fascinating descriptions of this practice called the ring shout uh, from early, early Afro-Christian experience. This is in the days in slavery where African captives were converting to Christianity. But of course, they were maintaining a lot of religious and cultural practices. And we think the ring shout is one of those African transitions that that literally keeps Africa alive in the new world. So it's the idea of worshiping and people would be in the formation of a circle. And then there would be both movement as well as music and testifying in the midst of this circle uh, of experience. And, and they called it the ring shout, because as people became invested with the Holy Spirit, they would literally shout and lift up these exhortations. We have a variety of descriptions, and so we've kind of put together uh, what we think that ring shout is all about. And interestingly enough, I use that idea of the ring shout and the various descriptions of it uh, in a play of August Wilson's called Joe Turner's Come and Gone. There's a moment in the house, uh, in the boarding house, where they start getting the Holy Spirit on a Sunday night. And we kind of mirrored what I think was a ring shout kind of experience uh, at the height of that moment in the play. So ring shout is a part of our folk formation that really comes out of that long uh, distillation of African practice with new Christian practices. Yes. We see you with Dr. Gates in the beautiful sanctuary of First Church of your congregation with Patrice Turner singing and playing piano. Would you talk about how song and spirituals sustained the enslaved people? Well, I think it comes, uh, Lois, from the reality that music is so central to the African-American experience. And I think, once again, that is one of the fundamental aspects of what we were able to retain from our African cultural memory, the idea that you have music for everything, for, for worship, for bringing uh, babies into the world, for celebrating the transition of, of death into the afterlife. You have to have music for all of it. And I think that we've maintained that practice. So music is central. And there's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful adage that the, the spirit will not descend without a song. 
And I think that that really captures the idea that if you're going to have the Holy Spirit, you've got to have it on a song. And that's why music is so central to the worship experience. Even the preachers, even when they're preaching, they have a way of making music out of their sermons. And so that tuning preacher, that hooping preacher is a way to bring the music right into the spoken word. Yes, I was hoping you'd talk about hooping. (laughs) Hoping for hooping. Yes, well, you know, the interesting thing about hooping, of course, is that it really is, I think, a part of African-American kind of cultural tradition. But my particular religious tradition is not one which embraces hooping. So I'm not what, what you would call a hooping preacher. And I can remember quite curiously when I was just ordained and I would go to different churches. And the first question an old person would ask is, well, can you hoop? And I didn't even know what they were talking about. <laughs> until I heard it. But once I heard it, then I could resoundly say, I guess I'm not a hooping preacher. But but there are some great hooping preachers in our in our tradition. And the one that I recall the most fondly is, is Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin, who had a radio ministry in the 1950s and 60s, and who could really hoop at the climax of his sermon. It's a It's a way of exhortation where he begins to literally intone a particular pitch. And he's still giving you words, uh, but his narrative is now set on a pitch, almost like a psalm tone. And he begins to energize and it revs up and it revs up. And it's a a powerful, powerful um, homiletic practice. Hmm. So it it is a descendant of the African exhorter? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's still practiced. That's the important thing, that many of these traditions continue to be uh, maintained and and continue to be transformed and kind of uh, interpolated in in various ways so that the, the traditions never go away. They just get reframed, refocused. Again, seeing you and Dr. Gates within the Sanctuary of First Church, you talk about how spirituals actually came out of the 18th century. Are sorrow songs the same as spirituals? Well, you ask uh, what is on the surface, uh, a simple uh, question, but it really is actually a very deep question. W.E.B. Du Bois refers to the spirituals as the sorrow songs. And when he wrote that very important book, I guess, 1903 or 1904, called The Souls of Black Folk, he described these powerful musical expressions uh, called spirituals, but he called them sorrow songs because they, they captured some of the pathos as well as the ethos of African-Americans uh, in their worship experience. Uh, the, the misleading part about that, of course, is that these sorrow songs are not always sorrowful. In fact, sometimes they're quite redemptive and uplifting. But it's certainly true that the spirituals represent this broad repertoire of slaves uh, who had become Christians and who, because of slave law, oftentimes could not read scripture, but they knew the Bible stories and they set them once again to song. And the spirituals, I think, are a distillation of these important figures to African-Americans in the songs that they created. So when you think about the spiritual go down Moses or um, Ezekiel saw the wheel 
Uh, these are songs that really distilled the Bible stories, but in a very, very African-American way. They also capture many of the musical practices of, 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 of African-American folk culture, the kinds of scale formations. I have a short clip of an arrangement of the spirituals because the spirituals are not static. The folk spirituals after the Civil War become the basis for these arranged spirituals and African-Americans continuing to sing the songs, but now in a much more Europeanized format. So hopefully we'll get a chance to listen to a little bit of Ezekiel Saw the Wheel, and that will give you a great sense of how the old folk spiritual now becomes a very elaborate four-part arrangement for vocal. Ezekiel Saw the Wheel, way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel Saw the Wheel, way in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel way in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel way in the middle of the air. The big wheel runs my baby, and the little wheel runs my ace of the all wheel and all wheel way in the middle of the air. Better mind my brother how you walk on the cross way in the middle of the air. Your foot might slip and you get lost way in the middle. So what's fascinating about that little excerpt that we just heard is the ways in which these African-American folk songs now become a part of a evolving African-American culture uh, that now is uh, uh, trained in European music. And these uh, sorrow songs or arranged spirituals were literally the backbone of many of the choral groups of these first black schools. So when we think about the Fist Jubilee Singers or the Tuskegee Choir, we're seeing and hearing the folk music as it is now being represented to the world. And the Fist Jubilee Singers, believe it or not, sang uh, before the Queen of England in 1871. And so it was not only a way, a way of showing music, but interestingly enough, it was a way to show that African-Americans could be educated, uh, they could learn new skills, uh, new ways of expressing themselves, and could thereby become citizens in this uh, new world in which they were no longer slaves. So it became, I think, part of the propaganda, if you will, uh, of the potential of African-Americans in, in this new world. And, and certainly Du Bois and Elaine Locke and others were sensitive to the potential of these arranged spirituals as being a way to show that we not only still have the spirit, but we can sing it in four-part harmony. <laughs> and at quite a tempo, as we heard in that arrangement of Ezekiel. That's the fastest tempo I've ever heard. Absolutely, absolutely. And a very intricate arrangement that could only be done with a choir that was trained in, in European um, 
reading and expressing. Uh, and also these arrangements by people like William Dawson and Harry T. Burley represent this new generation of African-Americans. And I think that's one of the important statements of, of the Black Church documentary. It shows that the African-American experience is not a static one. It is continuing to unfold in front of our very eyes. And when we look at the music, we can see that unfolding sonically. And that so it gives us a great lesson at not only where we are in any place in time, but perhaps where we're headed. The Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews of First Congregational Church in Atlanta. We'll be back with more of that conversation about the Black Church and the importance of music after a quick break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews of First Congregational Church in Atlanta. He figures prominently as a music scholar in the Black Church, the new PBS series with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Here, Dr. Andrews talks about the role of call and response within Black worship. Well, of course, the idea of call and response is not unique to African-American music or culture. We, we can talk about call and response in virtually all the musics that we know, certainly in, in Western European concert and classical music, uh, the, the idea of call and response is literally baked into the cake of, of, of that repertoire. I think in, in African-American culture, though, the, the powerful idea of call and response is that it allows for a kind of uh, what, uh, what Christopher Small calls a kind of musicking, where everyone is involved in the performance moment, not just simply the performer and the audience, but the audience and the performer are one. Consequently, in worship experience, when the preacher is preaching and then gives that pregnant pause, that's the cue for the congregation to say, amen, come on, pastor, bring it home. And so that engagement back and forth, either spoken or sung, really is a way to create what, I, what I've written about as a kind of inclusive relationship. And that in itself, to me, is very powerful and liberating. Imagine a Black uh, experience in which you were not given permission 
to speak or you could not speak unless you had been given permission. And so the idea that you could say amen when you want to in your secret worship experiences, I think is a tremendously liberating idea. And I think that the worship experience evolves from that. When the grandmother in the back of the, of the, of the church or in the back of the praise house says, amen, come on, pastor. That's her being able to freely voice her assent to what's going on. And we hear it in virtually every aspect of our music, not just religious music, of course, but call and responses everywhere. But its cultural function is to create an inclusive moment in which everybody has and plays a role. That's the important part of it. And what an important metaphor you draw with, imagine having to ask permission to praise God, to find community within the congregation. Indeed, that is what all you hope for with a congregation. Absolutely. It's the enabling, it's the empowerment uh, that the African-American worship experience has evolved into. And that's because it serves the people where there is a need the, the cultural practices have, I think, addressed that need. And so we have the blues as a way of just saying how you feel in that moment. You don't have to publish it. You don't have to record it. Your blues might be different tomorrow than it was yesterday. But that's the fluidity of having your own voice to, to speak to the present moment. There is also a theme addressed in this series that I remember your first enlightening me about Dwight. Why did church music become a battleground? <laughs> well, I, I, I think being a, a church person, uh, I can speak firsthand from the experience that when human beings get involved in anything, there can be a battleground. And, <laughs> and, and the church is no different because... As uh, denominations began to uh, kind of take hold and direct their particular worship experience and uh, theological understandings, the reason why we have such diverse churches is because uh, things like worship and theology uh, are not agreed to in the same way by each denomination. So you have the Baptists and the Methodists and the AME Zions and the Church of God in Christ and the Pentecostals. All of these represent not just different worship practices, but different theological and cultural practices that stand behind them. So, for example, in my tradition, uh, in the congregational church, uh, our, our worship tradition evolved from African-Americans who had been newly educated right after the Civil War and who, by the turn of the century, uh, were very, very much uh, familiar with European arts and letters. And so that was a part of their new language. And so it wasn't an, an abandoning of their folk experience, but really, really embracing uh, what they had been trained in. So, for example, in our tradition, we don't have very many hooping preachers in the congregational tradition, and we don't have a lot of jumping and shouting historically. Now, that's changing, but uh, we were the church of the hymns and the anthems and the uh, concert music 
performed in the church. And so because of our understanding of uh, theological discipline, worship discipline, we had a much more restrained and less emotional approach. Uh, and that, I think that certainly has to do with the culture of this newly stratified, newly educated Black community. In the series, an example that's given in this discussion was the song, Oh Happy Day, making it to the top of the pop charts. I was wondering what your feeling was about that, Why? because the series talks about race records, but then how that was also an opportunity for religious race records. Yes, and, and I think that was one of the revelations for me of the series, because we've long known about the race record industry. We've known about people like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey uh, and Mamie Smith and this tremendous success of these early black labels. Uh, even before there was Motown there, you know, there was Black Swan Records and W.C. Handy. But what I didn't know uh, and what was shown to me in the series was the tremendous success of religious race records in the 1920s and 30s. And the fact that there were celebrities of that music as well. And I just, uh, we've always given that short shrift. I didn't realize how many thousands of records were sold by people like Reverend Gates and and uh, Arizona Drains. These are, these are singers and uh, evangelists and missionaries that I had never heard of. Uh, But they were a part of a very, very successful religious race music industry, even in the 1920s and 30s. And so they rivaled blues and jazz, but what we know about is classic blues and jazz and not them. So that also speaks to the way in which we've segregated our understandings even of of commerce. Uh, But to be sure, the church gives us a wonderful uh, test tube in which to see all of these things percolating. And, uh, and, and they continue to percolate if you think about um, the role of modern gospel music today and the gospel music industry. These are huge drivers, not only in terms of the spirit, but also in terms of um, the commercial potential that they have and share. I would love to take a moment to hear Reverend Gates who is cited in the documentary as one of the early radio and record preachers in the 1920s and 30s. And what's fascinating is Reverend Gates has a very conservative idea about men and women and their relationships. Uh, They highlight one of his sermons uh, called A Mannish Woman in which he's really concerned that women in the 1920s are starting to wear pants and starting to smoke cigarettes. And so um, I I wanted to play for you just a little clip of one of his sermons talking about his concern for women doing all of these worldly things called a smoking woman on the street. (laughs) All right now, smoking woman on the street. Let me tell you, young women, you may think Yes. That you get along very well yes. with the male sex. Oh, yes. And I want to tell you, oh, men, yes. showing up men, yeah. men, oh, yes. single men, Amen. old men, tell them about young it. men, yeah. single, oh, yes. is not looking no. for a wife no, not. with a cigarette no. in her hand no. on no. the street, oh, yes. smoking no. on the street. 
Oh, You're yes. low in dignity. Yes, you is. Of your race. Yeah. And of yourself. Well, yes, you is. Men don't love you like they used to. No. You're the cause of it. That's the You're trying your best. No. To look. Yeah. And be as much like a man. Yeah. As possible. It's hysterical. It's, <laughs> but he was representing, I think, Lois, certainly a perspective that was not singular to him. And so he represents one aspect of African-American culture that is very conservative in terms of ideas about women and sexuality and gender. And these are still some of the issues that, uh, that challenge the church today. And that's why I wanted to play it. And that is explored in depth in the series. Yes. In talking about music at the height of the civil rights movement, we hear the comment that without music, there would not have been a movement. Would you talk about the freedom singers? Sure. Well, you know, one of the fascinating things about the civil rights movement is that music runs all through it. Uh, and that is not accidental, of course. We, we talked about the fact that within African-American culture, there's music for everything. And so it would makes perfect sense that there would be music for marching, music for organizing, music for praying. And so the, the fact that there are singers and people, not just professional singers, but community singers coming together uh, to not just protest, but to reinforce and to support one another through song is really one of the great strengths of, uh, of the civil rights movement. Ambassador uh, Andrew Young oftentimes speaks uh, about the fact that when they were marching and he said, that sometimes when they they felt most threatened uh, and and most kind of concerned, they would begin to just raise up a song, and they would sing, and that singing would seem to kind of fortify them in the moment. And once again, I think that's a part uh, of of a central value in the church. Now, the freedom singers, of course, and many of them are people that uh, go on to very important careers like Bernice Johnson Reagan. But, you know, many of the, of the people that participated in the civil rights movement were young people. Many of them came out of the church and many of them didn't, but they all sang. And one of the interesting things I think is that in the, in the 50s and 60s, we see the, the emergence of specific singing groups like the uh, Freedom Singers, who take on a new role of providing kind of, not just uh, music for the movement, but also they're now starting to concertize. They're now starting to sing at fundraisers. Uh, they even sing at the, in the jazz, national jazz festivals because the songs that they're singing are so central to that moment in American cultural history. And I think Bert, Bernice Johnson Reagan uh, certainly is one of the freedom singers. And of course, later Sweet Honey in the Rock remind us of that culture, uh, not only of, of protest, but a culture of aspiration and a, and a culture of peace. And, and that's what they sing about. It's illustrated beautifully in the documentary by Rutha Mae Harris. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And when you think about it, that's, I think, the power of the Black church, that the power of these songs doesn't necessarily come from people who consider themselves musicians or performers, 
but these were people who were raised in this music and they understood its power and the collective expression of it then becomes the backbone of the civil rights movement, which was a populist movement. Yes, and supported essentially by music. Of course, there's also the likes of the exquisite Jesse Norman in this series. That's that's exactly right. The great Jesse Norman, who really, uh, in in addition to her great artistry and her generosity as an advocate of, of people and of uh, a positive purpose, she, in singing her arrangements of those spirituals, um, that's once again an example of the breadth of African-American cultural expression. So it's not just gospel. It's not just the arranged spirituals. It's not just of these other forms. It's all of it at once. Uh, I think is very, very much reflective of who African-Americans are in America. So even the idea of what is the black church becomes a much more complicated question when you think about the varieties of uh, religious practice, religious understandings, uh, communities, um, demographics. Uh, we are as broad and diverse as our Amer African Americans uh, in the United States and in the world. And so Jesse Norman brings that wonderful tradition that comes out of uh, those that came before her, like Marian Anderson, out of this trained expression of this heightened spirituality that is as moving as anything you've ever heard in any other worship tradition or style. The Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews is senior minister of First Congregational Church in Atlanta and music professor at Emory University. He appears in the new PBS series, The Black Church with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Part one of the series premieres tonight on PBA at 9 p.m. Sunday, February 21st would have been the 81st birthday of Congressman John Lewis. Honoring his life's work on behalf of freedom and his dedication to public service, a living tree tribute is being created in memory of the late congressman in Freedom Park. Hundreds of blooming plants, including over 300 blooming trees, colorful flowering shrubs, and fields of daffodils will be planted in the first phase of a multi-year endeavor. The project is a collaboration among the Freedom Park Conservancy, Trees Atlanta, and the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Dr. Kalinda Lee is head of programs and exhibitions for the Center for Civil and Human Rights. She joins us now via Zoom with Greg Levine, co-executive director of Trees Atlanta. Welcome. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here talking with you about this project and always happy to be on the show. Oh, and we're always happy to have you here. How perfectly beautiful to 
honor the legacy of Congressman John Lewis with a living memorial. How did the idea and collaboration come about? It really started working in Freedom Park for many years with the neighbors in Ponce Highland in the old Fourth Ward. Um, we had done some flower beds at the corner of, of Ponce de Leon and Freedom Parkway right by the plaza, the John Lewis Plaza, and another group of flowering beds at North Avenue in Freedom Parkway. And for many years, we had been doing the plantings, but uh, during COVID, there were a few neighbors in Ponce Highland that were con- did extra maintenance on these flowering beds. And uh, when, when John Lewis passed, we thought we should really do more um, to kind of honor him and make it that much more of a, of a beautiful place. And uh, 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 the past board president in Ponce Highlands, Beth McDonald, um, who's also on the Freedom Park Conservancy Board, and I just had some discussions around what could we do to further honor him. And, you know, we talked about bigger flowering beds with lots of perennials and grasses. And then being one of the co-directors at Trees Atlanta, I thought we could commit more and do maybe flowering trees, which could be even larger and more impactful. And at the same time, Freedom Park Conservancy was working on a master plan. So really wanting to do something big for John Lewis and so much work had been done previously when the uh, Andre Dickens was looking at some way to honor uh, John Lewis as well. He's a city council person for the city of Atlanta. And one of the ways was to focus on renaming uh, Freedom Parkway, John Lewis Freedom Parkway. Yeah, Kalinda, can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was really exciting to me when the partners from Trees Atlanta came to ask if the National Center for Civil and Human Rights would be interested in partnering in this project. Of course, we were excited about the opportunity to honor Congressman John Lewis for all of the work that he uh, put in as not only our congressperson, but as um, a civil rights icon, really. But furthermore, he has a very special relationship with this particular neighborhood, um, this area of town. He was uh, pivotal uh, as a supporter for the community in blocking what would have been a four lane highway that would have, you know, decimated much of the land that is going to be utilized for this project um, and many of the homes in the area. And he, for years, was deeply engaged with this community in particular um, as um, in really close relationship with his constituents. So all of that was really important to us to highlight and honor. And then we were also excited about the potential for this project to be, um, as you said, a living legacy. Uh, One of the things that we know is that the past and the present are always connected and being able to remember what happened before and how it is still relevant and inspirational for our continued activism is a huge part of what we're focused on at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And I, I can't think of any better way to be reminded of this and to be you know, in reflection and contemplation than by actually moving through this flowering forest um, in honor of the congressman. I understand you interviewed John Lewis before his passing. 
Can you tell us about that conversation? I did do an oral history with the congressman November 1st, 2019. I will tell you, in fact, that he was quite ill even when he agreed to do it, Um, but he was so generous with his time and his energy. Um, And because he had spoken so many times about his life's work, I, I wanted to be respectful of his generosity and focus in ways that were not um, fully explored in other interviews. And so we really honed in on his relationship to his Atlanta constituents and especially to Inman Park, actually, because it was a partnership with the Inman Park Neighborhood uh, Association. One of the things that he talked about was the road fight. Another thing that he talked about a lot was how he was really actually inspired. You know, we think about him as an inspiration, but he was really inspired by the neighbors in these communities because um, he said they were able to to really kind of understand their power as ordinary people who had unique gifts and to lend themselves over a protracted period of time to work that was necessary, right, in order to protect their community and also to protect communities adjacent. So it was about their own interests, but also about operating in solidarity with other people who had a need. And he said that, you know, there was no question in his mind that he would support the effort. And I just have to throw in one more thing, um, you know, Lois and Greg, because I think it was so telling in terms of the way that he thought about his his work and service. When we finished the interview, um, a group of school children happened to be coming into the building for a tour. And uh, a number of people had come, you know, our CEO and some other people had come downstairs to meet the congressman and greet him. And he broke away immediately and made a beeline for the kids Aww. because he really wanted to talk with them and make this connection about how, you know, the lessons of the past are ever with us. And he wanted to know what they were interested in and to talk to them and inspire them about how they could use their lives. One had the immediate impression that this was not a politician in search of a photo op. We have so many images of John Lewis engaged with children and young people, and you can just see the delight he took in passing on this idea of good trouble to them. I was hoping, Greg, that you could talk about the actual weekend, how the three days will unfold. Yeah, we're looking at really a a five-year project, and we're starting it on the weekend of both Arbor Day and John Lewis's birthday. And the State Arbor Day is on the 19th, and that's when tree planting will begin. We have about 75 people to 100 people each day and they will be helping to plant over 135 trees and another two to 300 uh, tree seedlings as well. And it's starting right at the John Lewis Plaza and we will move down from each day further down to the North Avenue um, portion of the, the block that we're starting at. Eventually the flowering trees will go all the way from Ponce de Leon down Freedom Parkway all the way to Boulevard at the Martin Luther King District in the Martin Luther King sculpture. 
So it's a mile and a half of flowering trees. Um, again, we're doing the first, you know, 20% this year. And it's, it's really exciting in that, you know, we're really focusing on this uh, explosion of flowering trees that bloom in February, right around uh, John Lewis's birthday and having all this hordes of color and focusing on one of his favorite trees, which was the magnolia tree. So Friday will be primary planting. On, on Saturday, we'll have a, a small um, group of speakers. John Lewis's brother will be there. Uh, Kalinda will be speaking, a couple of, of city council people as well. Uh, one of the sponsors is UPS, and they're going to have people from their leadership speaking, you know, just talking about the legacy, about the big project. And really, you know, this is a, this is a, a tribute that, like no other that we know of, it's, you know, a mile and a half a corridor of flowering trees that we, we believe will be blooming from all the way from February to May because we're going to have so many different species. So we really are celebrating uh, John Lewis's life over several months and a, and a mile and a half that connects, you know, these um, John Lewis to Martin Luther King District. It is just breathtaking to think about that. I mean, cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C., that's pretty, but it's a limited time period. And this will just continue for months. Do any of the varieties of trees and plants correspond to Congressman Lewis's life or philosophy in any way? You mentioned that the magnolia was his favorite. I was wondering if there is some added meaning in the names of certain plants. We haven't gotten there that that far yet. There's some trees that are symbolic of peace. Really, our, our focus was to do as much of the blooming trees during around his birthday to really start that celebration. And, you know, and last through Black History Month and all, going all the way through to spring, really uh, extending the celebration of um, this great man's life. And I was going to just add to that, you know, one of the beautiful things always about working in partnership um, is how we can add our various areas of expertise together to create something, you know, particularly impactful for the community. So one of the things that the National Center for Civil and Human Rights has been doing with um, in the partnership is creating a timeline of the congressman's life so that we can really point out uh, watershed moments and events and specific things about his personality and attributes, interest. Um, of course, we have no idea how that historical content corresponds to trees, um, but our friends in the uh, conservancy and in trees uh, Atlanta certainly do. So working together, we'll also, you know, be digging more deeply into that question, as Greg was saying, and we'll be able to do this over a long period of time. So even though, you know, a limited number of people uh, will be able to participate in this planting, uh, there are going to be so many more opportunities to do that moving forward and hopefully to encounter you know, interpretive signage or maybe even some digital tools that will help you to understand how what you're encountering in this space is relevant to the, these lessons of history. So there, there will be something within the center that will explain the flowering tree forest? Actually, 
we are more focused in being a partner around what happens outdoors. So we recognize that our work is both inside the center and outside the center, right? Throughout our landscape, we do programs and projects, sometimes in schools and other places um, in the public. And so we're hoping that the interpretation that happens around this can be sort of in situ. So if you're if you're moving along the path of the flowering forest, you might be able to encounter something, whether that's on your phone um, through an app or something like that, or in physical signage. We're still you know working together to figure out what that means. Um, but we like very much the idea that this is happening in this public space because it's the ultimate kind of democratic space, right? And I mean, not, you know, party affiliation, of course, but the whole idea that this is a space that is accessible equally for everybody. I was going to say for all Atlantans, but even visitors, right? For anybody can can come into this space with no entrance fee and participate in whatever is being offered there. Well, I wouldn't understate your knowledge of trees. You used quite the metaphor in an article recently that I read on the AP. You said, Congressman Lewis sowed seeds of hope and equality. Indeed he did. There you go. His life's work was this, as you say, this undaunted fight for civil and human rights without prejudice or exception. And I think that this living memorial is just one of the most exciting things I've heard yet. Ahead of the tree planting event, Trees Atlanta is hosting a speaker series. Clinda, you will speak this evening can you share any details about the event? We will have a couple of speakers from partner organizations in this particular instance and a moderator who will lead us through a discussion about both the planting and what to expect and the impact that it will have on our landscape and ways that people can participate in that process over time. And we will also be talking about not just the congressman's biography, but in a very specific way, um, his commitment to nurturing the idea that we can all, no matter what kind of background we come from, no matter what access to power we seem to have or not to have, we can all make a difference um, that is meaningful with our lives, we can use our lives. Um, and that's a central message that we certainly embrace at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. We want to help everyone to find a way to uh, tap their own power to change the world. So those are the two things that we will really be focusing on. And there will be an opportunity for questions and answers. So we hope that there will be lots of participants and that we'll have a robust discussion after the presentations. Greg, you envision the flowering forest tree tribute to John Lewis to take place annually, I understand. Any ideas how it will evolve in the next few years? We hope to do, at a minimum, a planting every year on his birthday. The Freedom Park Conservancy and the Parks Department's master plan for the, for the entire John Lewis Parkway 
Uh, there are other components that will be added there. You know, they're looking at doing meadow plantings to continue to add to the flowering forest. There, there's possibility of putting lake, a lake in there. And as Kalinda said, a lot of, you know, signage explains, you know, John Lewis's life and his um, contribution. But we actually think in the fall, there'll be the start of a daffodil planting and possibly a meadow planting as well. And we'll continue to do um, care for the forest uh, throughout the spring and summer season, watering it. And what Kalinda had said earlier, really what's really beautiful about this project, it's, you know, planting a tree, first of, first of all, it's, it's a contigu contiguous legacy. It's growing. Everything we do today will get bigger and more beautiful. Um, just like uh, I think the contribution John Lewis had done in the past and it will continue to grow as well. Uh, and people who really want to be part of of this legacy will get an opportunity to be part of it. Five years of installation is a, is a long time, but the, the care for this forest and the visitation and hopefully uh, um, everyone's effort will continue. And uh, again, the collaboration and partnership and people working together is really what I think all of this is about. You know, everybody wants to, to be part in honoring um, this great man and, and we all believe, I think everyone believes that, you know, working together is the way to, to accomplish the most you can. And that's what these, all these partners, these nonprofit partners are doing, the city of Atlanta and in community that comes out and helps. Um, that's, I think that's what all of our organizations are about are really engaging the community to make a difference. And so um, we see uh, a lot of tree planting going on, hopefully it, about 800 trees in, in, at a minimum over the five years but we're talking about hundreds of, of seedlings as well, flowering meadows, and a lot of improvements in the parkway between Ponce de Leon and, and Boulevard that the Conservancy, Freedom Park Conservancy, will continue to, to raise other funding around and, and support um, really making this everything it can be. It's such an appropriate way of honoring his life and legacy. Greg Levine, Dr. Kalinda Lee, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lois. It was, it was great to, to speak with you today. That was Greg Levine, co-executive director of Trees Atlanta, with Dr. Kalinda Lee, the head of programs and exhibitions at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Trees Atlanta is hosting a virtual speaker event tonight at 7 to discuss the flowering forest tree tribute to John Lewis. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook, at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.